0: From Greenbiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at Greenbiz Headquarters at 350 Franco Gawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, Agricultural Carbon Credits are Growing Like a Weed, a Field Guide to Corporate Renewable Buyers Groups, Why Clean Energy Investment is the key to tackling climate change, and Was Exxon Greenwashing the Olympics? We're testing our medals this week on 350. It's August 26, 2016. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. I'm here with Green Biz senior writer, Lauren Hepler. Hello, Lauren.
1: Hey there. How's it going?
0: It's going good. So you're off on a, kind of a bit of an adventure here. You, uh, We haven't really told the Greenbiz audience about this, but you've started school. What's going on?
1: Yeah, going back to my get my education, I am starting a masters program in journalism at the nearby University of California, Berkeley. It's a two-year program focused on investigative reporting. So looking at some of these ideas around climate, cities, all the sorts of things we cover on a day-in and day-out basis. Uh, And excited to get cracking on that. And then obviously stay plugged into everything in the green biz world.
0: Yeah. And uh, we'll have you at Verge and, uh, you know, sort of continuing the podcast. And uh, we're happy that we get to do that. But you, you're taking some classes, I think, on, on investigative community-related uh, work?
1: Yeah. Given that we're in the Bay Area at the time, I saw yesterday, Oakland is now the fastest rising rents in the country. A lot of focus on cities, urban development, gentrification. So obviously things that come into play closely with issues of equity and the environment so i think uh, a lot of different crossing paths and things to unpack and hopefully we'll get to work through some of those things
0: great well let's uh get into our first class here the uh, week in review We had two pieces this week from our uh, esteemed editors at large. The, the first one is this week is uh, from David Crane, and it's about Exxon, the Olympics, and Greenwashing 2.0. So David Crane is, uh, I think most people know, is now a senior operating executive at Pegasus Capital Advisors. Before that was the CEO of NRG Energy. And uh, he was uh, is an Olympic uh, uh, geek, apparently, likes to watch as much of the Olympics as he can. And uh, was, uh, as a number of people were, and I saw some stuff on social media, uh, struck by this ad campaign that ExxonMobil was running on alternative energy
1: Yeah, really fascinating. I love how David phrased it, too. While everybody else was looking at the gymnastics team, he was trolling the outer reaches of the NBC broadcasting system. (laughs) Well said. Um, But yeah, so sort of this concept, this framing that we saw in Olympic advertising that Exxon Mobil is in fact an alternative energy company. They're turning algae into biofuel and working on carbon capture and electric vehicles. Interesting because I remember Exxon was also represented at the COP21 Paris climate talks, and there was some backlash then as well. Um, seems like uh, quite a shift from a certain story that we heard a lot about last year of Exxon covering up climate science.
0: Well, and it's kind of back to the future uh, in a certain way, in that this isn't the first time that uh, big oil has been touting its green credentials. Um, uh, companies like Exxon and Shell and Chevron and, and of course, BP uh, have been doing this for years, and and BP may be the most notorious because it got way ahead of its skis with its uh, Beyond Petroleum uh, uh, campaign that it started running uh, in the mid two thousands. Um, ahead of its skis in a couple of ways. One is that it 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 never ever got more than one percent of its revenue from alternative energy, and it's even hard uh, to um, quantify that because they you, they lumped. Uh, solar and wind and biofuels with natural gas as as non petroleum based fuels, so natural gas was probably the the bulk of that and so I think it was probably one tenth of one percent of their revenue was actually beyond petroleum, so they were getting way out in front of what was actually happening and then of course, when they had let's call it a mishap uh in Fetters. the Gulf, yeah, in the Gulf of Mexico, you know it just really as bad as that was it really exacerbated their reputation because they had been touting this for so long. So now Exxon, uh, which had been, you know, had done some of this back in the 90s and 2000s, talked about um, some of its uh, alternative energy interests. Uh, it seems to be going, uh, doubling down on, on biofuels. I, I'm not sure uh, how much we know that they're actually producing, but it seems to be their talking point. Do you have any insight into that, Lauren?
1: At this point, I think, um, the, the main thing I'm curious about is how this all jives with the fact that oil prices are still pretty low. Um, they've rebounded a little bit, but really how, how do these companies balance R and D in some of these alternative energy spheres when, um, they're also sort of struggling for cash in their traditional business wheelhouse? David did note in his piece, though, that Exxon back in 2009, announced plans to spend $600 million on developing algae as a transportation fuel. But then in 2013, the company sort of slammed the brakes on the program, having reportedly spent only about $100 million over a four-year period.
0: Yeah, and, and, and then this year, uh, Exxon's CEO said that uh, it's going to actually be 25 years uh, before they can actually turn create motor fuels out of algae. Um, because of technical hurdles. Um, this was their CEO, Rex Tillerson. And so, you know, for all their luster, I mean, this isn't anything that's going to benefit consumers or the climate anytime soon. By the way, David Crane is going to be on stage. I'm really looking forward to this conversation we're going to be, I'm going to be having with him and uh secretary Dennis McGinn who's the assistant secretary of the navy uh for energy and environment and uh these are two people who have been there done that in renewables and energy for decades and uh also incredibly outspoken and not afraid to say what they think even even uh Denny Denny McGinn uh, in his role in government has been uh, we I had him on stage at the Hawaii Verge so uh just another reason to be uh, looking at uh, coming to Verge in September Well, one
1: technology that's definitely already here is the rush towards food data analytics. I put together a piece this week on eight companies to watch in the space, and it really does range all over the place. You've got uh, companies like the Brooklyn-bred startup AgriList, which focuses on being an analytics providers for people running greenhouses or indoor farming operations all the way up to the Climate Corporation, which was acquired by Monsanto back in 2013 for a billion dollars and offers a whole range of sensor-based information on weather, soil nutrients, other data. And really the upshot here, uh, one, from a sustainability perspective, is cutting down on some of the inputs that go into our food system. So, fertilizer, water? How can you pare back the natural resources or chemicals that are applied to food? Um, but it's also a field that's very broad and has lots of potential applications.
0: Maybe you should step back uh, a little bit, Lauren, and talk about what does food data even mean? Is this, this is not data about the food itself, nutritional value, or things like that. What, what is, how is this data being used and applied?
1: Well, that's the interesting part. So in a lot of areas right now, um, we think about food data tied to precision agriculture, precision farming, where you're being much more careful measuring the inputs that are used in the production process. So, again, things like water what is the quality of the soil and what sort of fertilizer do or don't you need? Um, but there are people that are also looking at various parts of the supply chain. Like you said, that um, there is the potential to sort of look at the data or the information of actually like the chemical makeup of food once it does get to market. There's a company called Consumer Physics. It actually comes out of Israel that makes molecular sensors where you can sort of scan an item, any item in theory. Uh, And then get information about that item sent to your smartphone. So that could be interesting in this debate about um, genetically modified foods. That's sort of more of the nascent R&D end, um, but interesting for sure.
0: Wow, dial V for vitamins. Um, (laughs)
1: Exactly.
0: (laughs) But it's also – it's not just uh, growing food out in the field. It's also – some of this data is really helping this boom in urban agriculture.
1: Yes, definitely. And that's where AgriList is probably one of the biggest players. They've gotten a million dollars in the bank after about a year in business. And they're really at the vanguard of the boom in urban agriculture, sort of making these indoor greenhouses or um, urban farming operations as efficient as possible. As a lot of people and city planners are questioning how much these types of setups can really add to our food system. Are they a novelty or are they something that we should be looking at more at scale? Um, And then on the other end of the spectrum, there's another interesting company called Food Genius that I wanted to point out because they work with some of the big players in food service, manufacturing, like Coca-Cola, or even restaurants like the big fast food chain Arby's. Um, And they're really focused on tracking food as it moves through these big organizations to minimize waste and sort of maximize the efficiency of how food Flows through these businesses.
0: Yeah, the food data thing is really interesting. And we're going to be talking a lot about that at Verge uh, later, well, next month in September. But speaking of food, we had some great food for thought from our editor at large, Bob Langer. Now, Bob uh, has been uh, writing for us uh, intensely for about a year and a half since he stepped down. as the chief sustainability executive at McDonald's, where he spent almost 30 years. And a lot of what he's been talking about in, in his writing is sort of what he's learned and, you know, his pieces on learning and uh, working with NGOs and some the power of collaboration and, uh, you know, some of the lessons he's seen in other companies that have spoken to him. Um, he's got uh, this week part one of a three-part series we're going to be running uh, next week and then first week in September. And this first one is called Sustainability Leadership Amid Fear and Pressure. And it's just, it's just sort of it's fascinating, and I just really love what he's writing here because he's, you know, talking about what he's learned and, and some of the key lessons uh, of what's working. And it's not uh, all, you know, accentuating the positive. It sounds okay. Well, that's, we should all do that, but don't be afraid to be humiliated and humbled. Was one of the pieces of advice that I just, you know, it was just really interesting. And what does that mean? And why? And what? Did, how did he experience that? Uh, I really recommend this piece.
1: Yeah, I was really intrigued by the section on better living through conflict. Another one, it seems like kind of, what do you possibly mean by that? Um, But it was really interesting. He talked about his experience of McDonald's being sort of called out for some potential supply chain offenses by by NGO groups. Um, So one of the things he said was, I actually called up Greenpeace, and he calls that still probably his bravest call ever. Um, but it's this idea that maybe like standing up for what you believe in is important. You can't be afraid to meet with your credit critics. If a program you're working on really is something that you feel that you can stand behind. Um, and also that your reputation has less to do with what you're doing and more to do with how you actually do it.
0: Yeah. But one of the signatures of Bob's career was that he was never afraid to, uh, Take on any critic uh, to engage with any critic, and God knows Mcdonald's had a few critics out there and and still does, but he he you know rather than run away from them or Stonewall or put out some p r you know uh, counter uh, argument he he'd talk to them, he'd call them up, he'd go visit them, he went down the Amazon with people from Greenpeace who had been criticizing McDonald's about uh, buying soy and its impact on deforestation. Um, and he said he we, we spent five days on the river with Greenpeace folks to s- see the world through their eyes and, you know, walk in their shoes or at least ride in their boat. And, um, you know, that's uh, such a really uh, – great example of you know how to how to be effective not just in sustainability in general and so um you know bob's a hero of mine i i've said that many times before and i really encourage you to read his piece
1: In the last couple of weeks, you may have heard a lot about cap and trade in California. This policy is a little bit up in the air, but we had our senior writer, Barbara Grady, take a look at a different side of the issue, and that's the issue of ag carbon credits going to market. So first of all, Barbara Grady, senior writer, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. So tell us a little bit about this story. What does
2: agriculture have to do with cap and trade? Well, for the first time this past season, a cropland farming offset was available to buyers in the California cap and trade market in the form of a rice protocol. So essentially, a group of about 20 rice farmers who practice sustainable farming on their rice fields have reduced enough methane to package the results into a form of an offset. So in the cap and trade system, offsets can be bought by companies or entities that are not meeting their carbon reduction caps and so need to go into the market to buy an allowance or an offset from somebody else in order to meet that cap. And a group of people spearheaded by Robert Parkhurst, the Agriculture Greenhouse Gas Markets Director at the Environmental Defense Fund, have been working with a group of farmers in uh, California and in Arkansas in the kind of mid-south area to create a rice offset protocol. It's taken years, but it finally um, has been successful and in the market this year.
1: Interesting and timely, like I was alluding to, since the cap-and-trade system in California almost expired along with the rest of California's climate policy.
2: Yeah, legislation to extend California's Global Warming Solutions Act was just passed this week after a bit of a close call from what we heard and read. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: And it's interesting that we're talking about rice here, maybe not the crop most associated with California. So what do rice farmers actually do to reduce methane or qualify as part of this protocol?
2: Well, rice cultivation actually produces a fair amount of methane. And in Arkansas and the Mid-South, where, believe it or not, even more rice is grown than in California, they've begun a bunch of practices to start to reduce that methane, and um, there are three different types of practices that have been packaged into this protocol and have been approved by the California Air Resources Board. And in California, one of them is called dry seed farming. And then in Arkansas, um, a big one is called alternate, alternating wet and dry farming. And all of them essentially um, kind of interrupt the the breaking down of the plant. I'm going to have Robert Parkhurst from the Environmental Defense Fund describe them for you.
3: There are three practices that generate credits under the ARB's rice offset protocol. The first is dry seeding. That is uh, drilling seed into the field rather than flying it on uh, to a flooded field pre-germinated. Second Mm -hmm. is alternate wetting and drying. So that is, rather than keeping a field flooded the whole season, it's flooding it up and then allowing it to naturally dry down and flooding it up again. And then the third is early drainage, and that is um, taking what you would traditionally drain the field prior to harvest and moving it up seven or ten days. All three of these practices have demonstrated decreased methane emissions while at the same time not impacting yield. And that's critical. We want to make sure what we're doing will continue to allow us to feed the world while at the same time reducing greenhouse gas emissions.
1: It's pretty fascinating stuff. And so I just did want to clarify, this is the first cropland-related farming offset to actually be included in California's cap and trade program?
2: Yes, that is my understanding from all the people that have been working to create it. The rice offset protocol was the first crop land offset. Harkhurst and the Environmental Defense Fund team and others, the farmers that he's working with, are hoping to create two other offsets um, that would be also available to California companies that are in the uh, regulated by the cap-and-trade system. One of them would be around farming with reduced amounts of fertilizer, and another would be around grasslands, like preserving grasslands. But the Rice Protocol is providing a lot of kind of lessons for them um, in how to construct these things. And here again is Robert Parkhurst describing that process and what he hopes will grow from the Rice Protocol of a growing market that will incentivize farmers to practice sustainable operations.
3: So while we're working on implementing the Rice Protocol and working out all the kinks in it, we're also looking forward to several other protocols that we'd like to develop. We'd like to, to build from the rice protocol and, and use the learnings from that to create other protocols. The two that we're currently working on is one around uh, fertilizer optimization, so getting the, the right rate uh, and minimizing any loss into the environment. Uh, and then our second protocol that we're working on is the avoided conversion of, of grasslands to croplands, and so uh, what that protocol would do is that it would allow landowners that keep ranching lands as working ranches to be able to get credits for uh, the uh, carbon sequestered in the soil. And both these have a lot of similarities to the rice protocol. Uh, a lot of, of a lot of them are using models, and a lot of them have the same type of, of needs to bring multiple farmers together into a single project.
1: Definitely be interesting to see how this model potentially translates to other markets related to agriculture. Um, But I was curious about something you mentioned right before that clip, which was this idea that these sorts of protocols can potentially incentivize farmers to implement some of these sustainable farming techniques. I think we hear a lot about in environmental circles. Can you talk about that a little bit more?
2: Yeah. So... Farmers would be paid for their practices, their projects in the offsets. At the moment, the market is so new that they're only getting like 6 or $7 an acre. That's what a farmer, Mark Isabel, told me, who's who's very involved in practicing the alternate wet and dry farming. But he and others hope that this will grow and so that they'll actually earn some income that makes a difference eventually. It'll provide farmers with more incentive to switch their practices to be more sustainable, um, less water intensive. Less H D producing.
1: Finding a way to bring some of these sustainable ag techniques we hear about to life. I like it. And I'm also getting very hungry. So, senior writer Barbara Grady, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome.
0: So one of the things we love to do on GreenBiz 350 is to talk to people who come through the office. We have a great steady stream of people coming through, and one of the people who came through this week is an old, long-time, let's call it, friend of mine named Ken Lachlan. Ken is uh, one of the uh, longtime experts in. Uh, energy finance, particularly clean energy finance, uh, most recently with a firm called Impacts Asset Management, but also working on a number of projects. Really, really interesting stuff. Ken, first of all, welcome to GreenBiz Studio.
4: Thanks, Joel. Honored to be here.
0: One of the things you said to me earlier today is that clean energy finance may be one of the most important and probably one of the most underutilized tools we have in addressing climate change. Can you explain a little bit more about what you mean by that?
4: It's really an exciting time. I've been working in this arena for More than 25 years now. And what we see today is a combination of an increasing understanding of the importance of addressing the challenges that climate change is forcing upon all of us around the world, and the ability to utilize technologies and systems which have matured over those last couple of decades to the point where they begin to make sense in a commercial context. And as we reach that stage, and that stage has clearly been reached now, then the ability to scale up the deployment of those systems becomes critically about people and about money. And the people side is very important and challenging because we need skill sets that aren't always available or they're not available where they're needed. But the money challenge, both locally and internationally, is one that we face today in the clean energy front and we'll face it for the next two or three decades.
0: So there seems to be a lot of money out there. Just in general, there's the dry powder that uh, some trillions of dollars that companies are sitting on, that pension funds have, that uh, uh, institutional investors have. Is it a matter of, of, of pointing them in the right direction and making a business or the investment case for clean energy? What seems to be the what's needed to be done here?
4: That's a terrific question, and, and you're exactly right. We did a study with Bloomberg New Energy Finance earlier this year which looked at the amount of funding that would be required and investment level that have to be deployed to keep the world on a path under two degrees C increase in temperature. And one of the key findings from that analysis was that there was all the money we needed to fund all of the investment that needed to take place in this sector was available and it was available today. There wasn't a single subsector of the financial community which would have trouble digesting the volume of new investment that was needed over the next 25 years to meet that target. But that money isn't in the right places yet.
0: So like what, give you an example of what the right place would be.
4: So we had interesting conversations uh, when I was talking to some of uh, the major bond investors about uh, they're interested in investing in more clean energy assets and projects.
0: So these are cities and municipalities and, and governments that are issuing bonds, or are these corporate bonds. Who are these bond issuers? These
4: are these are typically the financial institutions, principally institutional investors, perhaps pension funds from those uh, from cities or states, mm-hmm. and also large pools of investment capital. Those are folks who invest in assets, uh, physical assets, bridges and tunnels, and factory well, buildings. buildings. Yeah. Exactly, uh, but they also invest in projects. These are really good investments, and that's now well-established. And they understand that they're good investments. It's taken a while, but that recognition is clear. When we talked about their ability to make the level of investment needed out over the next 25 years, the bond investors said that was trivial. They could hit that target next year if the volume were demanded of them. When I explained that today, 50% of that investment takes place in the US, in OECD markets, the, the, the developed markets, and 50% takes place in emerging markets. But in 10 or 15 years from now, 80% would take place in emerging markets. We ran into a brick wall and the investors said, well, I, I'm not ready to make those investments. So. We have a lot of work to do, all of us collectively, both the investors and the folks who facilitate that kind of investment, to increase the capacity of investors to move money from where it sits today, which is largely in the developed world, to where it's needed tomorrow in clean energy investment, which is largely in the developing world.
0: So, one of the things that's happened in the developed world. Is that uh, companies like Solar City or Sungevity and others, where they've they've packaged these up so that uh, that whether it's residential or commercial, uh, solar can be uh, securitized in effect and and made reliable and fairly risk free uh, at both ends, and that the technology is going to sit there and it's probably going to work well, and that the uh, the the building owner or resident is going to be uh, paying that for for some time because they have to pay an electricity bill. What's the risk profile? How is it different in the developing
4: world? The the projects are the same, the technologies are the same, and so those elements of the investment are unchanged. But developing markets are typically less well established. The rule of law is not so well positioned. The ability to uh, solve a problem, if one develops, uh, often the legal systems not as as robust as that here, and in particular, in almost every market in which you move in the developing world, you have major exchange risk problems, currency, an absence of foreign currency, local currencies, challenging for the local investor, the local buyer, um, and for the foreign investor in order to get, uh, hoping to get an adequate return on their investment.
0: How about here in the United States? Is there, there, there seems to be, we barely scratched the surface of what's possible in terms of, you know, producing solar and, and wind energy, Is there a robust market? My sense is that if the if the return is there and the risk seems reasonable, that it's not a no brainer, but it certainly should be a easy. It seems like it feels like it should be an easy thing to do.
4: I I think that's correct over time, but investors, like everybody else, know how to do a particular kind of job, and they keep doing it until it stops being a useful kind of job for them to do. So, if you want them to undertake a new job, so to. for example, invest in a new asset class, they were they were financing uh, oil and gas plants. Long history, been done for 100 years in the United States, very expert system structures, analysts, a lot of people understand how those investments are made. Well, now we're talking about technologies that are much newer. They, in fact, exist have existed for more than 50 years, but they've only been commercially important for the last decade or two. So there are fewer people with that skill set in place to make the investment decisions.
0: And is there an opportunity here for the, the corporate community in terms of uh, companies investing not just in their own facilities, but uh, deploying capital in a certain way? What's the opportunity there?
4: When we looked at this analysis uh, done with Bloomberg, one of the projections we made as a team was that the level of investment by U.S. corporates in clean energy technologies would rise fairly materially over the next uh, 15 to 25 years because we think U.S. companies in particular who are familiar with these technologies now will increasingly see them as a very logical part of their overall financial structuring and they'll wind up investing in those resources for themselves and for the broader community because they know it's such an attractive investment class.
0: Are you optimistic that this is going to accelerate at the scale, scope, and speed you think is needed?
4: It absolutely is accelerating, and it absolutely is not accelerating at the scale, scope, and, and pace that we need all of us to achieve. That's the challenge.
0: And that's the opportunity as well. And that's uh, you out evangelizing and uh, helping sp- spread the word. Uh, it's, uh, we look forward to having you back in a year or so to hear, uh, hopefully, that it's changed or certainly to hear how it's changed. And hopefully, we'll, we'll see some more progress. Uh, Ken Lachlan from uh, Impact's Asset Management. Thanks so much for stopping by. Thank you, Joe. one of the stories we've been tracking for well several years now is the rise of renewable energy purchases by companies particularly big companies and particularly a relative handful of big companies like Walmart Google Apple uh Microsoft and others uh, the, and this has been indicative as the price of renewables has gone down and the demand has gone up as more and, and and concerns over climate and more and more corporate commitments about climate have been made that this demand is ramping up. Uh, in fact, this week, the New York Times had a, had a really great piece um, called Apple Becomes a Green Energy Supplier with Itself as a Customer. And in some ways, as often as the case, the New York Times is talking about a story that's really been around for a while. Walmart, uh, a couple of years ago, really formed a, a utility in effect that for which it's the customer. Now Apple's doing this. And uh, it's just another procurement vehicle. But along with this growth uh, of companies buying renewables is the growth of organizations to help them do that. And this week, we have our own podcast producer, Soraya Melkonian, who's working on a piece that's going to run early next week. That's a field guide to renewable energy purchasing organizations. Uh, So so Soraya, talk about what's going on. What did you find out there?
5: So, yeah, there are many groups um, that kind of bring together all these companies for climate. There was that recent, um, the White House Agreement, that brought on 154. Um, And there's plenty of other groups. And within those groups, a lot of the times they kind of perfunctorily have commitments for kind of supporting more renewable energy in the market. But what I was looking at were um, these groups that are very focused on renewable energy and making more companies come
0: together towards this goal. And these are all groups that have members and and companies join them. We'll get to that in a minute, some of the companies that are joining them. But name some of the groups that you looked into.
5: I looked at six main groups. Um, one of them was, uh, it's the RE100. Um, RE is Renewable Energy. Renewable Energy 100, exactly, which uh, started at the end of uh, 2014. And their goal is getting companies to sign on hardline. We will have 100% renewable. The date is kind of you know, up to the company, but the purpose of that one is to, you know, get companies to commit. And then another one, which is similarly um, the purpose of this one is to also signal to the world that companies want this, um, the corporate renewables energy buyers principles. So they similarly have um, these six principles and companies sign on to them. Um, but it's different from the RE100 in that there's no specific goal. Rather, it's these six kind of ideas that they think the market needs to So it's to a figure. set of
0: principles to help companies uh, go down, not just commit to renewables, but commit to certain aspects or certain kinds of renewables or buy them in a certain kind of way.
5: Yeah. And, so, and the way they're phrased isn't kind of an edict toward uh, companies. It's Supposed to be companies are taking on these principles and they're showing the world we are behind these. So for example, one of the principles is that they want the entire marketplace to grow. They want more competition among um, suppliers of renewable energy. Um, Another principle is they want utilities to start providing uh, these services. And so it's a different perspective than, say, the RE100. Yeah, and then there's also other groups I was looking at that kind of facilitate and educate companies that may want to get it, you know, may want to sign on to the RE100 or the Corporate Renewables Buyers Principles, but don't know what that entails. I talked to James Hewitt of ACOR, the American Council on Renewable Energy, and uh, he manages a corporate procurement uh, working group for them. And I asked him, so your members, these people that sign on to um, your group and are involved in your conversations and your reports and all of that what what are they seeking and what do they think they need um, in order to actually start using
6: renewable energy
0: let's see what he had to say
6: I think it's going to be really hard for any energy manager as 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 great as a, as great as the 20-year contract might sound to be able to go to his or her CFO and and, and say you know this is a good investment uh, you know but as soon as you kind of run it up the chain, it's it's going to be pretty hard to get buy-off for a, uh, you know, 20-year contract, uh, especially if this is something that the company typically has not done. So it's just – it's a lot of education for, you know, each of the stakeholders involved. You know, conversely, you'd have to go, you know, say someone at one of the large banks is, is looking at financing a, a, a shorter-term project, why he, you know, or she can justify – you know, looking at something that they haven't typically done before. So that's you know, just a lot of of kind of new um, concepts and, and 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 terms that have arisen through this trend. You know, compared to a utility offtake contract with a triple B credit utility, uh, and then when you compare that to a you know triple B credit investment grade company, you know you. The company's probably going to want a shorter contract term. They're probably going to, uh, you know, look in that, you know, 10 to 12 year range as opposed to 20 years. And most of the time the, uh, investor's probably going to be a lot more comfortable signing the deal with the utility just because, you know, historically they've, those have been pretty secure deals. They, you know, they're, they're, there's not a lot of issues about longevity and, you know, they feel pretty safe Supplying energy or providing the capital to meet those obligations, but long-term, you know, this this kind of shift to consumer choice and options within the energy market more broadly is really, you know, I think driving this CNI trend. And if we can find ways to come up with solutions that work for everybody, then that would behoove. The industry and be in everyone's best interest to get as
0: many projects done as possible. So so who are the companies that are joining these and what are they looking for?
5: So I actually, I went through and I collected all of the corporate signatories to all of these principles and all the members of these groups. Um, and I, in my piece, there's a chart um, that lists all of them. Um, and one thing I noticed was um, a lot of the same companies are Members of these different consortiums and groups. It doesn't mean that you know it's completely redundant. All of these groups provide a different service or signal in a different way. But I'd say maybe about twenty companies that um, show up on uh, a lot of these. And on my chart, my uh, idea was that I would show which companies will show more than three times within these six groups. I could probably name some
0: without looking. So there's probably Amazon. Google, yep. um, the big cloud users in, in, in general, eBay, yes, yeah. Is perhaps, uh, Adobe. Yeah, is Adobe's in, in all yeah. of them. But those are all tech companies. What about, who are some of the non And Walmart, of course, non-tech company. But who are some of the other non-tech companies that that showed up?
5: So, yeah, it is very heavy tech, but Kaiser, Johnson & Johnson, Mars, Cisco, Bloomberg all showed up many times um, and are members of many of these groups of uh the BRC and the the principles and ACOR. But uh, then you do see some differentiation. So say for ACOR, that's the American Council on Renewable Energy. Yeah, exactly. Their focus is finance and policy. And so of their members, there's a lot of banks and financial institutions. But yeah, for the most part, a lot of these groups are say of the like Fortune 50, um, for sure, Fortune 500 that are on these um that are members of these groups
0: what about smaller companies i mean there's thousands and thousands and thousands of small mid-sized companies and some of these are not mom and pops these are these have uh, 10 20 50 100 even a million and even uh, hundreds of millions of dollars still considered mid-sized is there any organi- or did there any of these organizations servicing them
5: that is what i kind of noticed to be a blind spot rocky mountain institutes um, Business Renewable Center. Um, actually, so th- what they are is they're a consortium and they bring together people from all different types of stakeholders. Um, and um, they provide what they call a marketplace, the VRC marketplace. Um, and there you do, you do see a lot of smaller groups and a lot of smaller distributors. Um, but in general, it's it does skew. Um, to very large and very techie companies. And actually, I asked this um, to Kim Fisk of Three Degrees. Three Degrees is a, um, a private renewables kind of matchmaking company. Um, and I talked to her to kind of get a more critical res- perspective of these groups.
7: This, this low-hanging fruit of this Fortune 50 is really driving the conversation. How do you get the Fortune 500 to the Fortune 1000 to sign on? And it's not just signing on, right? It's how do you educate them, and then how do you get the product to them? And that's part of where, you know, I would urge BRC, REBA, all of those groups to really go to the developers and say, developers, you are not giving the CNI company – you're not giving the corporates the product they need. They are not utilities, and they should be getting more involved in – helping to drive what that product is because the product is not Apple, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, right? The, the product they need is way below that. And, and it just feels like we're, we're up in, in this ether of these very, very large corporations. And that's just not where the bulk of the power is going to and the carbon. And it's not where we're not able to move that smaller group yet.
0: Well, that's really interesting. And I think these are some of these groups are really new. Um, they're going to be ramping up. They're just now ramping up. And over the next couple of years, uh, hopefully we'll start to see some big changes. But we'll be checking back on that and see how they're doing. So, Saria Melconian, thanks for coming over to This Side of the Mic. Thank you, Joel. podcast for this week go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find links to the organizations the stories events and other things that we've talked about in this episode thanks as always to podcast director and this week reporter saraya malconian and if you want to send us an email do so at 350 at greenbiz.com we'll see you back here next week for another edition of greenbiz 350 until then from all of us here at greenbiz group I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, have a great day.